The issue that seems to be igniting debate not only amongst the public but also experts and scientists is that issue of vaccinating children. This is our precious future generation. They don't typically get severely ill or die from COVID, and vaccine research in this population is difficult to conduct and therefore limited. But the virus's impact on children has evolved over the course of the pandemic. At first, they were seen as largely protected and not susceptible, but now, especially with Delta and older populations being vaccinated, children are at higher risk. But it's not just about saving them from hospitals and death. It's also about preventing long COVID, which has been seen more in children than adults, and also stopping transmission, which is increasing with Delta. With inactivated vaccines already being used in Asia and South America as young as two years of age, Western countries have been administering the mRNA vaccines to 12 to 15-year-olds, while 5 to 11-year-olds have just been given the green light by the FDA. So how do naturally worried and concerned parents make sense of this and ensure they're making the absolutely right decision for their kids? It's a serious topic that deserves dedication, so let's hash it out with the experts and some data. I'm Sirani Fernando and you're listening to The Vax Files. This is episode 13, Protecting Our Children. So the virus's impact on kids depends on their lifestyle and behaviours, and this has been different around the world during the course of this pandemic. Some countries have had more lockdowns, mask mandates and school restrictions than others, and this will speak to how much transmission and infection is happening amongst kids. But experts agree on one thing, and that's that the impact on kids is more noticeable now with the Delta variant than it was with the original Wuhan or Alpha variants. People have this tendency because at the beginning of the pandemic of thinking that, you know, the younger populations are the ones that are less at risk. That was Maria Batazzi again from the Baylor College of Medicine, who is also a professor of pediatrics. And they still have this perception that young kids, even if they get infected, they just don't get disease. And we are seeing that kids do get sick and some very sick. And indeed, now we're seeing potentially even more. And it may also be certainly a reflection of a couple of things, right? You know, the variants play a role, right? The fact that, you know, uh, kids also may be eventually affected with the long haul effects of the COVID-19, right? You know, like, the long-term sequelae, which we may not even really see until the children start growing up, right? So I believe it's not just that there are reservoirs of, you know, people carrying the virus because we know they do carry it and transmit it, but we really need to start protecting them. Her thinking is all about getting ahead of the virus to protect children and their future health, as from her experience, she's concerned about the long-term effects of the virus in kids. We don't want these kids to get infected. And even if we say, oh yeah, sure, they're asymptomatic, but we don't really know the long-term sequelae of having an infection by this virus, even if at the beginning may give this perception that it doesn't have any severe symptoms. We're seeing that kids sometimes get sick even many weeks after the infection. So these syndromes are really long-term too. So we have to be very cautious discarding them as not being a group that we need to protect, especially knowing that they are the ones who are going to be our next generation. 
clearly we're having infected kids now and small school outbreaks. That was Dr. Miguel O'Brien from the University of Chile, who we heard from last episode. We do see outbreaks in families that maybe the kids were the primary source, but usually kids have mild at most modern infection. He mentioned that while the Delta variant has caused the virus to transmit more amongst kids, fortunately, it doesn't seem to be linked to as much severe disease as, say, the Gamma variant, which, if you remember, was the variant that originated from Brazil. That variant caused more severe disease in kids. It clearly showed that it had an increased risk of ICU admission, like two to three times more than the previous variants. That influenced the surge of ICU admissions in March, April, May, especially in young individuals who are not vaccinated at the time. But we haven't seen that now that Delta is predominating. So when it comes to kids actually experiencing severe disease or death, I asked Dr. Orion whether he was seeing an impact across the board or whether it was specifically impacting kids with comorbidities. Actually, if the children that have died, 90% have comorbidities. So clearly death in children is, is associated largely with comorbidities, it's very rare to have a healthy young girl or boy get COVID and die. But if that boy has severe obesity or diabetes or hypertension or immune compromise or pulmonary disease or heart disease, those are the ones that are treated at higher risk to have a, a more severe fatal COVID infection. Now, this raises the question on whether only higher-risk children should get the vaccine. And while all experts agree that these kids should be prioritised, many experts think that the healthy children should also be offered some protection due to the longer-term implications of COVID infection in kids and also our greater goals to achieve global herd immunity. If we're talking about herd immunity, right, That was Dr. Nadia Sam Agudu, who is the Associate Professor of Pediatric Immunology at the University of Maryland School of Medicine. She's based out of both the US and Nigeria. To get to a point where transmission is made highly unlikely because a certain threshold proportion of a population is protected or is immune from the disease, we have to consider children too. Unless we have data to show that children don't get this particular disease or cannot transmit this particular disease, which is absolutely not the case with COVID. Children get COVID. Children can transmit COVID. And so they are part of the considerations for attaining herd immunity. And for me, that alone is enough argument to vaccinate children. Now, it might be a question of a matter of time. You want to vaccinate people who are highest vulnerability with respect to getting severe disease or long-term effects of the infection. She said that at the beginning of the pandemic, children were not the priority, and it was about protecting the higher risk groups and older populations. Going into younger populations, particularly children, is seen as the natural path to control and de-escalate this pandemic. As Delta and these other variants came around, we realized if we don't get a handle on it with respect to attaining herd immunity, it will be very, very difficult to contain this. So children are part of the herd. So if we want to get to herd immunity and not have to keep worrying about people who are still highly vulnerable, we're going to have to include children in these considerations. So how do vaccines get trialled for children? With most vaccines, they're first trialled in adults, and once the safety and efficacy profiles have been characterised, companies then start to de-escalate clinical trials by age, all the way down to infants and babies. 
When vaccines are tested in younger kids, doses are modified, most often corresponding to weight, and trials are a lot smaller where safety is the main measure along with immunogenicity, meaning how much of an antibody response the individual can build up. If that antibody response is what is deemed protective for adults, then it's seen as though it's protective for children too. And so what we're seeing now are dramatically smaller studies in children in the low single-digit thousands compared to those huge studies we saw in adults in the 30 to 40,000 range that showed efficacy in preventing symptomatic COVID. There are two vaccine modalities being administered to kids under the age of 16, the mRNA vaccines from Pfizer and Moderna in the US, and the inactivated vaccines from Sinovac and Sinopharm in China, and Bharat Biotech in India. So let's start off by talking about the inactivated vaccines, as these vaccines have the most data in children. And this is mainly because of its clean safety profile that has been seen in adults and now also in children. Beyond safety is looking at efficacy and from the data that has come out, some of these data we've had to extrapolate from adult data, not because we haven't done the trials in children, but for some of these observations, they have been done for longer periods in adults, right, during the trials and then post-trial experience. And the efficacy is, for all of these vaccines, as good as adults, if not better in some cases. The Chinese vaccines from Sinovac and Sinopharm have been approved domestically in China for children three years and up. Meanwhile, India's Barrett Biotech vaccine has been approved for kids two years and up. Some trials are happening in other countries with the Sinovac to get more data in those particular regions to be able to make considerations for expanding vaccines for children. And these are like Kenya, South Africa, Chile, Malaysia and the Philippines. So she mentioned Chile, and Chile is one of the most vaccinated countries in the world at over 81% vaccinated, and because of that, they're actually paving the way somewhat with vaccine use in kids, specifically with China's Sinovac, which has been the most used vaccine for adults in this country. Here's Dr. Orion with some insight on what's happening on the ground in Chile. With a highly vaccinated population, discussions came in about advancing the vaccination in children. And I am well aware of the WHO's concerns about advancing vaccination groups that are not the main targets. And I've made that discussion clear in Chile. So Chile's case is really interesting, as the discussion amongst Chile's public health officials on vaccinating children really accelerated because schools have been closed since the pandemic started. A year and a half into the pandemic, children were still taking remote classes, and this was really due to strong sentiments from both parents and teachers to keep schools closed. So the push to vaccinate kids wasn't just about protecting them from COVID, but more to get them back in school. So, the large proportion of adults being vaccinated in Chile with no serious or fatal events really spurred the health officials to investigate data on this vaccine for children. And what they reviewed was a small published immunogenicity study that showed a high response in kids. And more importantly, they reviewed a safety report of the vaccine from China, which covered 40 million children from 3 to 16 years of age, with a very low rate of adverse events, none of which were fatal. So that reassured the group that the safety profile in kids looked very good. There was no reason why not, because the safety profile in many minutes of doses in adults has been very good. But that was reassuring. It was also reassuring the studies of the immune response in children, showing that the immune response actually was somewhat higher than what was observed in adults. 
Dr. Orion said that recent published data specifically on the clinical trials in Chile showed that Sinovax's vaccine was around 60% effective in protecting against infection and around 85% protective against severe disease. Now that's just in adults, but somewhat of a benchmark for children. There was space to use the vaccine. The question is then what effect would the vaccine have in children given that we know that children are less affected than adults for this virus. So there was reports from Chile around 250,000 positive cases in kids that represented about, I think it's about 10 to 12% of all cases detected during that period. So there were about 4,000 hospitalizations, so low level of hospitalizations, but there were. And they report 120 deaths in children, which actually for me was a surprise because I consider it pretty high. But those are probably deaths with a positive coronavirus, not necessarily due to the coronavirus, but that, that's what was reported. So putting all that together is that the government moved forward the pediatric vaccination program for COVID, understanding that there's, in my mind at least, an unclear impact that this will have in the overall pandemic, given the lower number of cases in kids and severe cases. But based on the safety profile of the vaccine and the expected effectiveness profile, it should have a positive effect, not a negative, but a positive effect. And giving all that together is that Chile is advancing with the pediatric vaccination program. And the last time I heard it's almost around 700 or 800,000 of the 2 million or so pediatric population has been uh, vaccinated. Now, Chile does have its own study in around 4,000 kids three years or older, and that should read out in around four to five months. But there has been some debate on whether Chile should have waited for these results to read out before they started vaccinating their own kids. Would have been desirable to have maybe waited for this Chilean study. He said the urgency in Chile really linked back to schools being closed, which wasn't an issue in many other countries where kids were still going to school under restrictions. One could argue that they could have waited. But then the other side is, wait for what? What what would we expect from that study to be different? You're not going to see a very different safety profile than the 40 million report that comes from China, if you believe the report. I mean, there's no reason why probably you should not believe it. It's an official report that the authorities had over the table. It's not a great report, but probably enough to get the idea of the safety profile. And they do... Uh, separate the 1,200 or so adverse events and mild, moderate, severe. Some serious adverse events that have popped up for the inactivated vaccines have been hypersensitivity, hives and anaphylactic shock, but they're all rare. Basically, it's a safety issue that you want to be sure in kids. You're not going to be able to show efficacy or effectiveness. You show immunogenicity and you show safety and then you do it in real life, you show what the impact is. So now moving on to the mRNA vaccines, which still seem to be the vaccine modalities producing the highest level of protection after vaccination. But on the contrary to the inactivated vaccines, the safety profile is where there's more of a concern. Both Pfizer and Moderna have pursued their vaccines in children. So 12 to 15-year-olds are already being offered the mRNA vaccines, and as we discussed in last episode, there was a rare signal of myocarditis specifically seen in young boys and men after the second dose. Now they are receiving the full adult dose, which has been questioned by some experts, and I asked Dr. Sam Agudu for a little bit more context on why a 12-year-old is given an adult dose when they're technically a child. 
the considerations we make as clinicians in giving children vaccines or, or, or drugs is not only development, as in physiological development, but also weight-based. She said that typically drug developers look at children 12 years of age at weighing around 40 kilograms. And she said the pharmacokinetic data, which basically means how the drug is absorbed in the body, is usually comparable with these groups. How much drug is needed to be distributed in your body and be able to address whatever condition or prevent whatever condition we are trying to prevent without getting into safety concerns. So there are cases where we can safely give vaccines to children, you know, 12 years and above, just like for adults, because the pharmacokinetic data are favorable for doing that. But even though that's been a standard for drugs and vaccines historically, there's now a debate on whether these mRNA doses are too high for this age group. There's been discussion on what happens with using the Pfizer vaccine in kids due to the association with myocarditis and pericarditis. And even though the risk is very low, if you have a very low risk of severe disease, where's the balance? And actually, that's what took the UK to provide one dose of Pfizer only to adolescents because pericarditis and myocarditis has been seen more after the second dose. So you start going into those different sets of recommendations based on what the data is showing you. And I think still we need time to see how that will go. And I think we also need to see what will come up from the US and from Europe in terms of the control of the pandemic without vaccinating kids and to see if they will be advancing or not to vaccinating school-age kids in the second stage or not. I think that's still open. And I know that there are many that probably say, yes, this will have to come overall to have a better control of the pandemic. But I think that's still somewhat a matter of discussion. So now the major developments for these mRNA vaccines are the trial results in children between 5 and 11. So for those particular studies, That's Dr. Deborah Fuller, Professor of Microbiology at the University of Washington, who we heard from in episodes earlier this year. They had gone into basically two phases, which they did a sort of dose de-escalation. So they started with the adult dose and they tested lower doses to find what is the minimum dose we can give to a child to simulate a protective level of of, uh, immunity. And of course they were looking and they had, of course, the adult level of immunity that they knew this level of antibodies going to provide protection if they get this level. And so they could go down until they found the lowest dose they could get to still get the maximum immune response. And what's interesting is with Moderna, they kind of came up with a 50 microgram dose, whereas Pfizer actually has two stage different doses for their very young under five-year-olds. It's just three micrograms. That's a very, very small dose. And then for the five to 11 years old, it's 10 micrograms. And then you go over 12 and over, it's the adult dose, which is 30 micrograms. They definitely have different formulations and the like, but it's kind of interesting that the Pfizer doses are much lower than Moderna doses. So the dose differences may not be so insignificant as some drug regulators around the world, including the FDA, have paused before authorizing Moderna's vaccine for 12 to 17-year-olds. Just last month, the FDA said it needed more time to review this age group, but the EU, UK and Australia have all authorized it. Now, Pfizer hasn't had this problem. It just got the green light for 5 to 11-year-olds in the US, and Moderna has said it will delay its US filing for younger kids while the FDA makes its decision on adolescence. So the whole situation around mRNA vaccines seems to be an evolving discussion about what exactly the benefits are versus the risks. 
I think there's a, a balance there between getting sufficient immunity and reducing the reactogenicity as well. So it's kind of interesting to see where they came up that they're so disparate in terms of the, the doses. They settled on that based on the balance of, you know, little or no adverse events and sufficient immunogenicity. So Pfizer studied around 2,200 kids aged 5 to 11, and Moderna studied around 4,700 kids aged 6 to 11. Both the vaccines are given in two doses, either three or four weeks apart, at those modified dosages. I asked Dr. Fuller how robust she thought these studies were, particularly their size in speaking to efficacy and safety. With any clinical trials, whether it's 3,000 or 10,000 or 40,000 people that are getting enrolled, that's not a million people, okay? And so adverse events like myocarditis and things that might happen at the 0.001% chance, the one in a million, are not going to get picked up in these clinical trials. And there's always going to be that possibility with not just vaccines, but any medicine, once you start to get in millions and millions of people, that those kinds of adverse events could show up. So they're as robust as they they can be to be able to evaluate efficacy and generally the risk to the majority of the population. But, you know, we can never say that every vaccine is going to not cause sometimes these rare situations like the, the blood clots that happened with the J&J vaccines and the myocarditis that has been detected rarely, but it might happen. So we can't do clinical trials in a million people. So there could be something else that pops up. We don't know that. But by and large, it comes down to the risk benefit again, you know, COVID-19 is not something you want to get. There are greater risks for that. It causes blood clots. It causes myocarditis. Okay. So, you know, the risk of getting the virus itself is so much greater. The, the uh, side effects and the long-term potential effects of that, the vaccine is, is always a safer bet. So Chile has been using the mRNA vaccines as well, and Dr. Orion said that Chile's regulators usually follow FDA recommendations. But considering there's a bit of a disparity with the safety profiles, I asked him what he thought might happen with the acceptance of the mRNA vaccine in Chile. That would be an interesting question. If the FDA approved the mRNA vaccines, our committee would have to look at the data anyways and be convinced a little bit what the European and the British analysis, if the severe side effects were at a range where it would compete with the severity of COVID, then I'm not so sure there would be an idea that we could switch or make it either vaccine, either Sinovac or either Pfizer for kids over six. I'm not sure, but maybe we would stick anyways with Sinovac, which has probably a higher, a little bit higher safety profile. In addition to China's inactivated vaccines, there's also India's vaccine from Barrett Biotech that was authorised in kids as young as two. Here's Dr Nikolai Petrovsky again from Flinders University with his thoughts on that. The younger population get a lot of traditional vaccines and that's done very safely. So I think when we're talking traditional vaccine technologies for COVID, and that would include the Barat inactivated vaccine, which is not much different to inactivated influenza vaccines, which we give to children from six months of age onwards. I'm reasonably you know, comfortable with that because it's just that, you know, those traditional technologies have been used in children around the world for so long that unless there was something very unusual 
and specific to COVID, which I don't believe there is, then it's reasonable to give those types of vaccines to young children. I think the, the concern becomes when you have a new technology that's never been tested in children before, you're not entirely sure how, how it might be working and what its you know, potential effects on, say, development might be. And we know that, for instance, the myocarditis is much higher in, in younger people than older people. Again, for reasons that haven't been well explained, but it does suggest that the young could be particularly vulnerable to some of the effects of the mRNA vaccines. I would be quite hesitant before recommending these vaccines be used in young children. While the inactivated vaccines do seem a little bit cleaner, there are always going to be rare safety events that crop up. And I asked Dr. Ryan what was typically found historically with these types of vaccines. With inactivated vaccines, first worry would have been enhanced disease that has been seen, you know, with some inactivated vaccines in the past. That means enhanced COVID. We haven't seen that. You can see anaphylactic reactions as for any other vaccine. You will not be seeing anything related with a viral infection because it's in an inactivated vaccine. So there's no way you'll see that type of complication. Then you can see rarely what abnormal immune reaction some child may have. Guillain-Barre or... Uh, I know that they're studying a case of a child that had meningoencephalitis, which they're not sure yet it was immune or not a couple of weeks after vaccination. So those type of things, abnormal immune responses in a child that develops an abnormal response to the antigen can, can occur at an extremely low level. So I don't know about you, but hearing all of this discussion really made me wonder whether rich Western countries might consider making inactivated vaccines an option for kids, considering there's more data on efficacy now and the priority is really safety, where there's a lot of hesitance around the mRNA vaccines. When you look at the data, when you look at the trials that have been done, and when you look at what is reported, the efficacy is actually quite good. For Sinovac, there's reported efficacy that's in protection against severe diseases near 100%. For Sinopharm, it's about 80%. A lot of us are prone to also thinking, you know, if something is made in the West, UK, US, Europe, you know, it's all right. But somehow if made elsewhere, you know, we have, we have concerns. To be honest, I wouldn't make any significant distinctions with all of them with regard to making these choices as a clinician and as a parent. Eventually, maybe indeed, the protein-based vaccines are the ones also the most amenable for pediatrics, right? Because we were already seeing how people have been a little hesitant with the RNA technologies as adults. And indeed, they are doing the studies, but, you know, the real life experience will be very interesting to see how well will these vaccines be accepted by parents, right? In the context of, of additional hesitance around just vaccines against COVID in general. So should we be expecting the overall pandemic to dramatically change if we start vaccinating kids? Well, that's a nuanced question, and the answer will depend on who you talk to and where. You know, the disease that's affecting 10% of overall infections, you're just going to have a lower impact overall in the circulation of the virus globally because kids are getting less infected. Now, the question is, 
if kids massively come back to school, there's a higher exposure risk. We will be having more transmission in that environment that we will be reducing with vaccination, which is a reasonable hypothesis. Difficult to show, but it, it, it makes sense that if you have a vaccine that has a good safety profile that you know has an effectiveness performance, as we've discussed, that it will be beneficial overall in the, in the circulation of the virus. Dr. Sam Agudu mentioned that the real concern of this pandemic is really what's going on in Africa. Most countries are 5% and under, and that includes Ghana and Nigeria, where I, I live and do most of my work. Now, she'll be talking to us more about the general situation in Africa in later episodes, but vaccinating children in Africa is probably going to be more important than vaccinating kids anywhere else in the world. Across Africa, a proportion of 0 to 19 is about 25 to 30%. And in some places, approaches 50%. It's a huge population. And what I stated also, they are getting COVID and they are dying. She said that while African countries are still struggling to give elderly individuals one dose of the vaccine, disease and death in children is happening, but it's also going heavily undocumented. There's a systematic review. She flagged a publication that looked at intensive care admissions as well as mortality outcomes, and the review found that there may be a larger impact of paediatric deaths in lower and middle-income countries compared to high-income countries. Infants 12 months and under actually have the highest mortality. That was certainly the truth also for the few African countries that were included in the systematic review. And they did mention that data from African countries was scarce. And that's similar to other data, whether observational or or, or so, that I'm looking at where people have done systematic reviews or or scoping reviews or summaries from globally. And every time I read it, they, they mention data from African countries was scarce. Data from children in African countries was scarce. There was not enough data from children in African countries. It is very difficult to to have to deal with this situation as a pediatric provider and researcher. So lower-income countries, especially countries in Africa, always get overlooked, particularly by the Western media and policymakers. But this issue is a big one. And in this region, it's less about the concerns around the risk-benefit profiles between the different vaccines, and it's more about highly vulnerable populations, including children, getting access to any protection. Because we know that if a virus is replicating uncontrollably in one region, this will inevitably have its consequences for others. Now, a bit of a tangent, but still related to children, is the issue of pregnancy, which still seems to be an issue of concern and confusion among some women, so I thought I'd squeeze it in. The fear is really around the potential for miscarriages and infertility, and now that we have more solid data on vaccination, pregnancy, and births, we're in a better position to talk about it. We know that vaccination and giving anything to pregnant women has to be studied very well. I would say that the data that has come up now and the several that have been reported pretty convincingly showed that vaccination in general is safe. This was shown for the Pfizer vaccine when actually it's been approved for use of pregnant women. I do recommend that pregnant women get vaccinated. For the data that we have at this point, the high mortality risk, the high level of illness for pregnant women, 
it's really concerning. And so at this point, with the information that we have, it has been safe for pregnant women. They have been able to have healthy babies and the rate of miscarriage among pregnant women receiving COVID vaccine, those in the general population who have not, is not any different. It's actually, unfortunately, not uncommon, about between 10 to 15%. But the data we have does not show that the rate of miscarriage in the setting of COVID vaccine is any higher than the background rate. It makes a lot of sense to me to protect pregnant women against the possibility of an increased risk for severe disease. It's not something to get pregnant women scared about. I mean, it's if they get COVID, the great majority will get by reasonably well. But there's increased risk for hospitalization, increased risk for need for ventilation, increased risk for premature delivery, and increased risk for death. So I think that that is pretty much well established. And that is the reason why pregnant women now are in one of the risk categories for COVID. With respect to fertility, unfortunately, a lot of these concerns also are mixed with rumors and you know, disinformation and misinformation. There have been concerns that the vaccines can negatively affect the ovaries, right, and affect fertility. However, there have been actual studies that have debunked that. She said there's also been some data collected from registry studies, albeit these are self-reported, that do not indicate any concern or any issue with a woman of childbearing age getting the vaccine and not being able to conceive. There's no biological substance to why the vaccine would cause infertility. I mean, you have to rely and you have to know the biological mechanisms that are reasonable behind whatever claim you're going to give. You would have to think that there was going to be any relation and the mRNA would have to reach the gonadal cells or whatever reproductive tissue and affect it. There's no data for that. It's just out of the woods. So the issue of our next generation and COVID vaccines will no doubt continue to generate much more discussion as more usage and data evolves. But one thing is for sure, children are a relevant and valuable portion of our herd, and the risk-benefit discussion needs to be tackled with scientific precision and care. Thanks to my guests, Dr. Miguel O'Ryan, Dr. Nadia Samagudu, Dr. Maria Botazzi, Dr. Deborah Fuller, and Dr. Nikolai Petrovsky for coming onto this episode. Next episode, we tackle everything related to vaccine policies, often issues that can conflict with science and stir up a lot of emotions, which we'll hopefully steer clear of. So don't miss it. Catch you next time on The Vax Files. Vax Files.